Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Look, if you think what's happening over there does not affect us here, well, tonight, right here in the United States of America, sadly, you'd be wrong. Tonight on Laura Coates Live. No, there are not any airstrikes happening here, and Americans are not being kidnapped here. Families are not being forced to flee their homes for war here. Thankfully, all that happens to be true. But the hate that's spreading around the world is very much being felt right here in the U.S. of A. Jewish and Muslim Americans are facing threats in synagogues and mosques, on the streets, on college campuses, even in their own homes. And the warning signs, many have said, have not only been there, they are there. They are here. The anti-Semitism, the Islamophobia, they have exponentially increased. And it's not somebody else's problem to grapple with. Really, as a society, It is our problem. Anti-Semitic incidents in this country, remember, they're up almost 400%. Imagine that figure since the Hamas terror attacks on Israel on October 7th. In fact, our statistics would indicate that for a group that represents only about 2.4% of the American public, they account for something like 60% of all religious-based hate crimes. I mean, the figures are shocking, but the pictures are shocking. I mean, we may not want to believe that it's actually happening here, but we are seeing it with our own eyes. At Tulane University, three students assaulted when a fight broke out at a rally over the Israel-Hamas war. In Minneapolis, a display showing the faces of Israelis taken hostage by Hamas repeatedly kicked over. In Pittsburgh, historically Jewish Squirrel Hill neighborhood, Graffiti reading, I stand with Gaza and death to America. Cornell University been following this story all week long. Canceling classes tomorrow amid what they call extraordinary stress on a college campus. That after threats to shoot Jewish students in the kosher dining hall led to the arrest of another Cornell student. I really think that it's an attempt to tear us apart. I don't want to be torn apart. You know, I don't want to look at my fellow classmate and think that's my enemy. And that came after a history professor at that same school, Cornell, initially said that he was exhilarated over seeing the Hamas attacks. They were able to breathe for the first time in years. It was exhilarating. It was exhilarating. It was energetic. Now, he later apologized for his choice of words. And the hate is spreading in Muslim communities as well. Islamophobic incidents are up 244%. These are astronomical figures. 244% since October 7th alone. 
a family in the Chicago area who put up a free Palestine sign in their yard? Well, they got a letter saying, remove the sign or burn. In Pennsylvania, a man who allegedly shouted racial slurs and pointed a gun at people holding a peaceful Palestinian rally is facing felony charges. And a family in Illinois is mourning this beautiful six-year-old Wadia Al-Fayyum who was stabbed 26 times, allegedly by his family's landlord. His mother suffered more than a dozen stab wounds. The DOJ, as you know, is investigating that attack as a hate crime. The boy's great uncle told me that the fear is spreading. We have a lot of, a lot of families right now. They're not, they're not sending their kids to school because they're afraid because we are getting threats to families. Afraid to go to school. Now, I, I said, if, if you think what's happening over there does not affect us here, you are wrong. But the real question is not whether it will impact, but perhaps what are we going to do about it? Joining me now, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. I'm so glad that you are here. You had a, a really thought-provoking piece that I was just poring over because you really are asking these sorts of questions. And, and this conflict, as you know, it's happening halfway around the world from where we are right now. Yet you just saw what's happening to Jewish, to Muslim communities right here in this country. There's a palpable fear in both of these groups. And it feels like it's perhaps going to get worse. That's right. I mean, I just came back from the Middle East and... Um... I must say the Middle East was more on edge than I've ever seen it in four decades of covering the area. Uh, I do think that the bloodshed is going to get significantly worse in the Middle East, that it, there's a real risk of it escalating. Um, and that then spreads here in the U.S. and in Europe. And, you know, frankly, I mean, Laura, I think part of the problem is is our world of the media, not not CNN, not the New York Times, but there are a lot of organizations that are taking advantage of this to um, to amplify hatred toward a particular community and to highlight the worst of one side and then use that to buttress one's own, you know, one's own side and to say, oh, we have to go after them. I just find this, I mean, as somebody who's been covering the Middle East a long time, just incredibly depressing. Uh, and I do fear it's going to get worse. I mean, you think about that and, and the end game of manipulation and, and who would that possibly serve as you describe? And the answer to that question, perhaps bone chilling for a lot of reasons. In your time, you have you spoke to recently a 57 year old Gazan woman who is in East Jerusalem. In your piece, you said that she said, and I'm quoting, that she approved of Hamas's attacks on Israeli civilians. I pressed her, you say, and she insisted it was fine even to kill a five-year-old Israeli child because, quote, they are all Jews and Zionists, unquote. That conversation, you say, pretty much broke your heart. And you are seeing similar feelings by some in Israel as well. That is just mind-boggling yeah. that that would be a sentiment that would be not only expressed, let alone actually uh, felt. Yeah, and it, uh, I mean, the, the terrible thing is that it wasn't unique. I had other conversations mm -hmm. with some Palestinians who were also, um, you know, dismissing the Hamas attacks or saying that uh, they weren't so substantial, you know, one should focus on our pain. And meanwhile, um, uh, you know, we had Prime Minister Netanyahu 
uh, cite a biblical passage about the Amalekites who were a the target of a of a, of a biblical genocide uh, with the Bible with God ordering even infants to be uh, killed and you know the implication was the Amalekites are Palestinians and meanwhile we have you know Palestinians in Gaza children dying at the rate for three weeks now of one every 10 minutes um, and I think that you know on each side that is possible through this process of mutual dehumanization and I must say when I when I hear people in my world my you know fellow liberals in the US uh, you know a majority of 18 to 24 year olds in the U.S. said in a poll that Hamas's attack could be justified. And as somebody, I've got to say, Laura, as somebody who was reported in Gaza a number of times over the years and seen what Hamas is, you know, Hamas is this misogynistic, homophobic, repressive organization that uh, is, you know, its its problem is not just that it attacks Israelis. This problem is it is deeply repressive right there in Gaza. But this process of dehumanization, I think, is making possible both terrible things happening in Gaza and terrible things happening, um, you know, in, in the West Bank and obviously the, the Hamas attacks and then rippling out through this country to the to the anti-Semitism and, and uh, Islamophobia that we're seeing here. I mean, mutual dehumanization it seems to me a consequence of when people are talking around an issue, being in their conflating topics, they're not taking into account the nuance that is quite evident in any diplomatic scenario, let alone what we're seeing in a region that has had decades, if not longer, of conflict that needs to be understood. And then you top it off with people who may be using it pretextually to advance a position, as you've said already, and I do wonder, because the Biden administration, speaking of how politics can often play hand in hand with this, they're out with a warning today saying that civilian suffering in Gaza will weaken public support for Israel's war against Hamas. Um, that's one consideration. You've pondered whether that would be true, but also whether it will weaken America's moral authority in the region. What do you think? I think that there are good practical reasons for Israel to take a more restrained approach in Gaza. And look, everybody believes that Israel has the right to self-defense. Everybody believes it has the right to target uh, Hamas uh, military personnel and, and Hamas fighters generally. But there is, you know, it seems to me unconscionable to bar fuel from Gaza in ways that turn off the generators of hospitals so that children today in Gaza hospitals are undergoing surgery uh, without anesthetic. Uh, you know, I saw a, a Doctors Without Borders video of a, I think it was an eight-year-old boy having his foot amputated um, without on the floor of a hospital without proper anesthetic as his sister, who was about to have her own surgery, looked on. And so, you know, I think Israel would be better off and would have its own security more assured if it took a more narrow approach toward Hamas. And I think that... Uh, the United States would likewise have its, um, you know, its own authority, its own moral authority would be in better shape if we encouraged Israel to do that. Because at the end of the day, if your moral compass is sensitive only to the suffering of one side, you've got a broken compass. And a very astute point. Thank you so much, Nick Kristoff. I appreciate it. So we'll see what Secretary of State Antony Blinken brings to the region. He's on his way. I wonder if he will share your sentiment and convey it as well. Thank you so much.
I want to bring in Maya Berry. She is the executive director of the Arab American Institute. Maya, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I have to tell you, anytime people are hearing about the realities of what is happening in Gaza specifically, within the same breath, because of the population, you're talking about children. More than half the population actually are children in Gaza. That adds a significant layer of thought and empathy and disbelief. And then at times people wanting to distance themselves from the harshness of this reality. I wonder with the numbers that we're, we're hearing about, 244% increase in reported incidents of Islamophobia here since October 7th, not there, here. That's stunning. It is. Um, I I'm one who uh, works in an institution where we tend to rely on um, the concrete data that's provided by the Federal Bureau of Investigation when it releases its annual hate crime data. And I will tell you um, that we've seen an increase um, in both anti-Semitic incidents, uh, in anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, um, regrettably anti-Black, every single category one can think of, we've been having record-breaking years in terms of hate crimes in this country. So I think we have to understand that's the context in which this latest episode of violence breaks out. And now we have what we term the backlash effect, which is events that are happening somewhere else in the world tend to kind of seep into our lives here in a way that's really very, very harmful. I mean, I, I heard the segment you opened up with. It's devastating to see the pictures of Wadi in Illinois and the situation that's mm. happening on our college campuses. So yeah, it's, it's highly regrettable and, and a, a particularly uncomfortable environment for a lot of people. You actually, speaking of the FBI, if that's where you're getting your data from, um, obviously looking at that org chart, you're talking about the Department of Justice. Yep. Um, you've spoken to the Department of Justice about the concerns that you have raised about those numbers. Yes. What was that conversation like? And did you feel heard and more of a, I see you, I hear you right now, I'll do something about it sort of way? Very much so. Uh, to be frank, the department, this particular Department of Justice has made a priority of combating hate and bias in a very real and meaningful way. And we've seen that um, for a long period of time, including uh, new legislation that was passed. And uh, this Justice Department has implemented in a way that it's the Jabara Hire No Hate Act. And they've been really serious about taking this approach. I, I will tell you, even that when we learned of, of Wadi's tragic death on, on Sunday, um, that evening, uh, a statement had been issued from uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland making clear that there's no place in, in our country for this type of hate. So, and I think that's important. When leaders speak out uh, quickly and with, with moral clarity, I think it really does help people um, and, protect, and protect people. But the White House, I think, came out yesterday to talk about they were trying to create a strategy yeah. um, to counter Islamophobia. Yeah. What do you make of that strategy? It seems a little bit ambiguous, and I'm being generous when we talk about crafting a strategy. Um, what would that strategy look like? Does, is the White House prepared to implement something that would be effective to do that? So, Laura, honestly, I'm going to answer that in sort of two different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the first being that as, um, as someone who works in the civil rights space to combat hate, one of the things we've told uh, this White House in particular is there is a White House initiative to combat hate crime and that we think it's important to leverage that work and to engage in that work and prioritize that work because hate doesn't... Uh, Hate is really intersectional. <laughs> it, mm. it targets all communities equally regrettably. So um, when they released a strategy initially on anti-Semitism and said there would be one on Islamophobia and what they called related forms of hate and discrimination, um, put 
sort of simply, I think all hate is related. <laughs> all forms of hate are related. And therefore, I think the best approach is one that brings us all together to do that. Having said that, they released the anti-Semitism strategy, and then there was this effort to release the one on Islamophobia. Um, it was expected last week. I, I will personally be honest enough to share that uh, I, I, I pushed back and said this is not the right time. Um, to release Why? the strategy because we're in the middle of a really um, difficult period with regards to what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in, in is what started in Israel on October 7th and then the onslaught of, of bombing and, and civilian casualties that you're talking about in Gaza now. So regrettably, I think at this point, it appears like it's a bit of a political move as opposed to something that's important to combat hate and the hate that's growing in this country in all forms. That's fascinating to think about because one of the reasons that hate crimes and people sometimes were um, bothered by the fact that you'd have hate crime legislation because they would say, look, we already have murder charges. We already have assault charges. Why do you have to add this additional layer there? And people would say in response, I think is a good response, the right response, hate crimes are so terrorizing because yes. it is indiscriminate based on your perception of who you think I am and anyone is a walking target based on your exercise of bigotry in any given moment. So it's interesting to think about the idea of collectively addressing it and not bifurcating it in the way you're talking about. But at, there are moments, given the numbers that Christopher Ray has spoken about, is there not a need at times to target and ensure that there is a focus on certain groups at certain times as priorities? Oh, without question. And and what, what Director Ray cited, I would say to you, is actually not new. Um, mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish hate crimes are always the number one category in religion, just as anti-black are in, in the racial and ethnic categories. So we have a problem of anti-Semitism in this country. There's no question about that. But I would suggest, though, that part of the, the proper approach is to understand that the collective response to hate crime, like the, the activity that we see out of the Department of Justice, is, um, I think, a better way to do this. I want to be clear, having said that, the White House initiated a strategy, and they have that, mm -hmm. right? And they want to add one on Islamophobia. That's fine. The, the issue now, though, that we're seeing here is that because of what's happening and because of, frankly, a very failed approach that the Biden administration has taken with regards to the crisis in Gaza right now, it's being viewed as we just released a poll that looking at Arab American voters. And, and to be clear, I also want to emphasize that point, that we ought not to conflate religion and faith. And, and part of the hate crimes that we're seeing increase and the bias that we're seeing is really targeting Arab Americans as Arab Americans. Uh, there's a a university employee at American University after a week ago there were swastikas painted um, um, in, in what is clearly mm. an anti-Semitic incident on a, in a college uh, dorm room targeting Jewish students. Then there was a flyer that was placed under um, the office of, of the uh, employee at AU um, saying all Palestinians uh, must be killed. So clearly we have a situation here <laughs> that needs to be addressed. And uh, it, it, it just doesn't do, it doesn't do well to both communities, all communities, Arab Americans, American Muslims, the Jewish community, if we end up uh, appearing to be engaging in politics over this. Now, I know this administration cares deeply um, about hate crimes. I, the president said one of the reasons mm -hmm. he chose to run was what happened in Charlottesville. We're just simply saying that, that that approach needs to be applied equally to all communities. And I think that's the only way we're gonna get to a place of, of doing better by what's happening. I hope you're right. I can tell you, what I'm not hearing anymore is people say, this is not who we are. And the absence of that statement is very telling and scary. Thank you so much. Thank nice you. talking to you. As always, I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Next.
Speaking of Trump, another Trump son takes the stand in that quarter of a billion dollar fraud trial. And things, I'm gonna tell you, they got pretty tense, but I'll tell you why next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. All right, if yesterday's testimony from Don Jr. was, it wasn't me, it's the accountants, let them do the mathing. Today's testimony by Eric Trump was more about him having only limited knowledge about any of the financial statements, and it got pretty tense. I have people with me right now who are pretty familiar with what happens inside of a courtroom and when it gets tense in moments like this. You know, legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams and former associate White House counsel to President George W. Bush, Jamil Jaffer. Gentlemen, it was tense. People thought it would be. It's his kids on the stand. Mm. What'd you make of it? What do I make of it? Uh, it's not an unreasonable statement or defense to say that I was relying on the advice of either my accountants or my lawyers. These are voluminous uh, statements of financial um, information, mm-hmm. and not everybody is. Not every manager is going to be deep in the weeds on it. What it appears that Trump Jr. did not say, and the point he never made was that he told his accountants, "I need you to assure me that everything you're handing me in this document is accurate and true and correct." Right? Important I, because he had to sign. He had to sign it, right? Right. So if you're going to rely on your accountants, you need to at least have them assert to you that they that they're certain that they're right. And so I think there was a little bit of look the other way when handing handed the documents. And I don't know what the judge is going to do with this. I'll play devil's advocate though, because he could just say, "Look, I'm supposed to delegate. That's the sign of a good leader, right?" And so I delegated people who I thought knew what they were doing. And so when they hand it back to me, I believe them. I mean, the problem is you got these emails that say you knew something else, Mm. right? I mean, this is the problem, right? You can only you can only do the shaggy thing so often, right? Say it wasn't you, right? I mean, he was there. <laughs> I mean, he got the emails. I mean, this is the this is the real challenge. I mean, receipts not- are inconvenient on trial. Yeah. 
Receipts are inconvenient on trial, and and, that, and I think that's where it got a little bit tense when he was confronted confronted with emails, and he also had given deposition testimony in the past and, as well that he was confronted with. Um, but again, it's the other thing. Wait, there, uh, wait, there was an issue with that because they were talking about which which one we're talking about, which kind of get it murky, right? Okay, you're mentioning this one, but the last one he was actually better at. Why was that a tense moment? Right. Well, I mean, anytime someone is confronted with testimony that they gave in the past, you know, it it leads to potential t uh, tension. Up because they get tripped up. You know, I think the other problem here is that in a bench trial, there isn't a jury, and th the judge is the trier of fact mm. and law and everything else. And it seems that all of the parties here have gotten under the judge's skin a little bit, um, and uh, they haven't done themselves any favors. Prosecution side too, you think? No, 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 I, uh, not necessarily. More, I more of the defense. I mean, this, yeah. this, this whole thing about going after the judge's law clerk. Uh. I mean, this is just this is a terrible plan, right? Mm. Judges are very close to their law clerks. The idea that Trump's lawyer, who was the former Solicitor General of Florida is going after the judge's law clerk, complaining about her, complaining of the notes being passed back and forth. The judge is credibly upset. This is not the way to help yourself in a bench trial. It's well, crazy. Plus, I mean, people who don't necessarily know what happens in the courtroom, yeah. a clerk, their job is not to just sit there and be a passive observer and yeah. then maybe bring some coffee. Their job is to be able to provide the judge with the information that he or she might need to ultimately fact check in real time and to aid in other matters. They were mad about the notes being passed, calling it a kind of a co-judgeship. Yeah, you know, we should stay on that for a second. It's really important. And I was a law clerk for two different yeah. judges. Uh, and something that they that the Trump team had picked on is that this is a second judge sitting up there. Why is she whispering to him so much? It is it is a critical role in courts at the state or federal level that these p people work for judges uh, and provide them with assistance on the law, um, assistance on facts, assistance you know running down doing research throughout the course of a trial. Mm -hmm. The idea that these very seasoned attorneys think that a law clerk is meddling in the judge and pulling the strings as some kind of puppeteer is just nonsense, and they know better than that. And it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you in a bench trial. And it trial. gets back to this Crazy. very point we were talking about a second ago. It just doesn't do any favors with the judge. This man controls your fate. Why are you pissing him off by uh, picking on his clerk and talking, undermining his authority? Well, the other part of it, though, is because it's a judge, right, the normal, perhaps, theatrics that might appeal to a jury who's accustomed to a law and order sort of gotcha Perry Mason moment, Judges sort of see through all that. You can save all that that type of charisma. So maybe the judge also would look at it and say, well, I know this is about, this is for somebody else's performance, but what about Ivanka? Because that's my real question. We've heard from Eric Trump, well, here we have him tomorrow, heard from Don Jr. Ivanka is saying that she doesn't want to appear because she has a scheduling issue with her kids because they're in school. We're all parents. We all rolled our eyes twice at that statement. But can she possibly avoid having to testify? I mean, it's going to be tough, right? I mean, the judge has not, has not been amenable to these arguments about not wanting to testify, right? Now, she could take the fifth. Is she defending? She's not defending. Not defending. Oh, she, oh, she's very much not defending. Right. She was, and then they right. sort of removed her from the case because she sort of removed from it. Now, yeah. now, but she, if, she ha if she thinks she might have liability elsewhere, though, she could claim the fifth, right? I mean, But an adverse she, inference right. will be drawn in a civil courtroom, right. which means that, as that judge could say, I think the answer you don't want to give me is, your, is the one that makes right. you look bad. Liable. So we'll see what happens. Maybe it's smart to point out the kids. I know I use my kids as they used to not go to social events all the time, oh. so maybe that's what's happening right now. Oh, wait. I gave myself away. I didn't mean to say that out loud. It's, it's 11 so p.m., so I, mm. I, I tried, but it's 11 o'clock. Thank I you for say. that salvation yeah. just now and redemption. Okay, everyone, Elliot Williams, Jamil Jaffer, thank you so much. Well, there's more than just that courtroom in New York. The former crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried, you know him as SBF, he was found guilty today of seven counts of fraud for his role 
and the collapse of crypto exchange FTX. We'll tell you how much time he could be facing behind bars. That's next. Tonight, the former crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty on all seven criminal counts of fraud, including wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. SBF was found guilty of stealing billions, yes with a B, of dollars in customer funds while running his crypto exchange FTX and then using the money to buy luxury real estate, make investments and also political contributions. Let's bring in Teddy Schleifer, co-founder of Puck. He has been covering SBF and FTX for years. He also interviewed Sam Bankman-Fraid while he was under house arrest. And you were in the courtroom when he was actually testifying and following this trial. First of all, the fact that he was found guilty, based on his testimony, are you surprised? No, I mean, it took uh, under four hours of actual uh, deliberation by the jury. And that kind of tells you all you really need to know right there. I, you know, I found the evidence to be, I'm just a guy, so what, what do I know? But the, the, so these, are the jurors. So are the jurors, right. And I think I found the evidence to be overwhelming. Um, the entire defense case was essentially Sam's word. There were, you know, a single hand's worth of other witnesses. And you had documentation, contemporaneous oftentimes, from Sam's three closest allies, indicating that a pretty massive financial crime was committed. His so girlfriend you, testified. His girlfriend, his girlfriend cried, cried, ex-girlfriend cried on the stand. So you have all that, and you have... This guy saying, no, trust me, you know. So mm. essentially, put yourself in their shoes. It's very easy to see why the juror took under four hours. But what's he like? I mean, when he was testifying, was he, did he demonstrate some confusion, some remorse, some shock that he'd been charged? Was there anything that they could hang their hat on to say, he didn't intentionally do this? You know, the, the direct testimony that Sam gave um, was the most charitable version of events that you could ever put on it. You know, he sort of, there was a lot of like passive voice, a lot of mistakes were made, um, sort of, of sort of sentiment. Um, and on the cross-examination though, his credibility w- was shattered a thousand times. There was lots of, I don't recall, I don't know, sure you could say that. Um, it, it, you know, he was on the stand for a day and a half under cross-examination and I don't see how any single juror could find anything he said to be credible. Then why did they put him on the stand? Was that their only means? Or was he insistent, is that his personality, to say, I'm going on? You know, I actually buy the argument that it was actually rational for Sam to testify at the point that he testified because he was being destroyed for a month uh, and had basically no other defense. Now, that's not to say that it worked because he got convicted on all seven counts either way. But I know ordinarily, obviously, defendants don't take the stand themselves. They think the risk is too great mm-hmm. if they're to do so. In this specific instance, I think it was actually rational. That being said, like, did it also conveniently line up with his enormous ego? Of course. I mean, he's facing like over 100 years. Is yeah, it possible? I mean, 110. I mean, whether he'll get that, who knows? Sentencing, I think, is in, not until I think I want to say March yeah. coming up. But he'll likely appeal. Right. Um, how do you think he's feeling tonight, though, about having been convicted? You know, I think his his EQ is um, uh, not always 100%. His emotional intelligence. Correct. Um, you know, when I would talk with Sam, I think he really believed he was innocent. Uh, and I'm not saying he he was or whether he should have thought that, but, you know, he didn't take a plea deal. He His lawyers didn't even want to entertain a plea deal at the beginning of this trial. Um, I think he believed he's innocent. I think, you know, he still believes he's innocent. His lawyer is out with a statement tonight saying that he is innocent and he'll fight this tooth and nail. Um, but to some extent, you know, he might think he's innocent until the day he dies. Um, the, there, there's an element to him that is, that is hubris that, um, 
uh, I don't think 110 years or seven counts of sentencing really damages his own impression of himself. So to wow. some extent, that's pretty human, right? You think you think you're right until until you know you're 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 in the slammer. We'll see until that sentence actually comes down. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Teddy Schleifer, everyone. And there was an FBI raid. I mean, New York City was on fire today, really. The FBI raid in the home of the New York City mayor, Eric Adams' chief fundraiser. I'll tell you why next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, there are multiple law enforcement officials telling CNN that an FBI raid at the home of New York City Mayor Eric Adams' chief fundraiser this morning is said to now be a part of an investigation to determine if the mayor's 2021 campaign conspired with a Brooklyn-based construction company to funnel foreign money into the campaign coffers. So I say the FBI agents, they took phones, computers, tablets, and files from the home of Brianna Suggs. Mayor Adams' office referred all questions to his political campaign, which said it will comply with any inquiries as appropriate. I want to bring in CNN political commentator and Spectrum News political anchor Errol Lewis. I mean, Errol, what do you know about this person whose home was searched and an FBI raid? Uh, yeah, listen, uh, Brianna Sugg, she's from a very solid family, very uh, solid and well-regarded family. They're very active in this community. Uh, she has been a fundraiser, but more in the in the administrative sense, not going around organizing big galas and events, but more processing the checks that come in and making sure that all of the paperwork gets filed. Uh, this is, of course, devastating for, for both the campaign and for this family uh, to have an FBI raid. Uh, the The allegations, while they might sound a little bit exotic, you got to remember, 40% of New York City residents were born outside the country. There are a lot of different foreign ties and companies and so forth, even surprisingly small companies. And so uh, that might be where things went wrong here. And um, the, the FBI, of course, as you know, doesn't do these things lightly. So this is really quite serious. And some of the reporting seems to suggest that they raided a number of different places, including mm. uh, the, the fundraiser's home. And I would mention, I mean, fundraising to support the mayor's campaign has previously been linked to criminal charges. I mean, the Manhattan DA charged, I think it was six individuals earlier this year in an alleged straw donor scheme as well, designed to support the 2021 mayoral campaign. So, um, and by the way, neither, and I'm going to note this, neither Mayor Adams nor his campaign were implicated in that indictment. That's very clear. But it does make people wonder why this is surrounding him again. Yeah, it's not a good look. It's a it's a problem. Uh, and look, we have the flip side of reform. We have this reform here where if you are a local resident and you're making a donation, uh, the government will match that donation uh, eight to one if it's a small donation. And so that has really given an incentive to people to do these straw donor schemes where they pretend that it's a qualifying that it qualifies for this eight to one match. 
and it then multiplies the amount of campaign money that's available. We've seen this happen over and over again. A fair number of people have been indicted and some have gone to jail behind these kind of schemes. So what's the political impact on his administration, if any? Well, calls are going around, you know, the rumors are starting to fly fast and furious that people may jump in the race and try and run against him. There are there's really no declared Democratic candidate uh, running against Eric Adams at this point. And indeed, his term is not up until 2025. So uh, it, we'll see what develops. But in the short term, it's an embarrassment. It's a distraction. Uh, it's not it's not much more than that politically just yet until and unless somebody steps forward and says that they want to challenge the mayor. That person has not made themselves known uh, so far. Well, I guess they say in politics, the night is always young. Errol, so nice to see you this evening. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Laura. Everyone, well, it's not exactly Beatlemania, okay, Ed Sullivan, but the Beatles are back, well, kind of back, because there's a new Beatles song, and it's all thanks to artificial intelligence. We're going to play it for you right after this. All right, tonight the band is back together. Well, sort of. The Beatles dropping a new song more than 50 years after their final performance. Listen to this song. It's called Now and Then. I know it's true. It's all because of you. Yes, you are hearing John Lennon's voice as well on that. The first version of it was actually originally recorded in 1978 by John Lennon. Now, after his death, his widow, Yoko Ono, sent the tape to Paul McCartney. AI was used to mix in Lennon's vocals. It also includes guitar and vocals recorded by George Harrison in 1995, six years before his death. Joining me now is national music writer at USA Today, Melissa Ruggieri. Melissa, I'm so glad you're here. First of all, there's Beatles fans, I'm sure, screaming at a black and white television for whatever reason right now. <laughs> yeah. But I love the Beatles. I'm a fan of them, of them as well. But I don't understand quite how this is AI enforced or infused. What, what is it? It's, it's AI assisted is okay. what it is. I think Paul McCartney confused things a little bit. He gave an interview this summer where he said they were using AI to create this song. These are John's vocals that we're right. hearing. Nothing is fake. This is the same stuff that John recorded on a cassette tape in 1978 that Yoko gave to the guys, you know, in the mid-90s. But in the mid-90s, they didn't have the technology. Okay. And the tape is tinny, rusty. When Peter Jackson did the Get Back documentary in 2021, they have this audio technology now where they can separate the tracks. So you've got your drums, you've got your vocals, you've got your piano. And the AI comes in where Peter Jackson can say to the computer, that's the guitar. That's the drums. Those are the, you know, and so that's what they did with the song. So they were able to separate John's voice from the piano and then also still had the instrumentation from George Harrison that, you know, from 1995. Paul and Ringo went back in and said, OK, well, we could put some new bass and new drums on this. Paul added a slide guitar solo in honor of George, actually. But so it's really the last time we're going to hear the four of them together on anything. I mean, this is the last song that was left on the demo tapes that Yoko gave to the guys. And hmm. this will be it. But. 
it's not, I think people might be a little confused because when you hear AI, you think artificial. It sounds like what you described to me sounds like a remix, honestly, if I'm being honest. Yeah. You remix an album, you strip some vocals, sure. you've almost done what uh, others do in the industry mm-hmm. to sample certain tracks and then combine it yet again. But AI more broadly is being used in music in the more traditional, if you can call it that sense. Yes, because what they're doing a lot now with AI is, you know, when they sample stuff, you want to take a little bit of an inst- piece of instrumentation, it's just so much easier with mm-hmm. the technology now to just grab that right out rather than what they used to have to do before with, you know, tapes and mixers and and all that kind of stuff. There, you know, there are other reasons that AI will probably be useful to producers in the studio. You know, they they say that it's not going to replace anybody's jobs, but Mm -hmm. it'll streamline things, it'll augment things. We know that sometimes that isn't always the case when technology enters the picture, but... but When is it bad? It's bad for a few things. It's bad when um, right now there are demo singers who are mm-hmm. out there. So there's a songwriter. They want to send their song to a, a major artist. A demo singer will cut that. They will send, send that to the singer, and the, the person can decide whether or not they want to use it. With AI, they can mimic the voice, as we heard with Johnny Cash. They can mimic the voice of the singer that they're sending the song to so that that person can hear exactly how they would sound if mm. they were going to you know, record the song. So well, you, you mentioned Johnny Cash. I'm going to play it for a second because mm-hmm. obviously Taylor Swift is literally ubiquitous (laughs) everywhere, people. Listen to this, what she's mentioning. Go ahead. Yeah. Hello, I'm not Johnny Cash. So it's gonna be forever or it's gonna go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over. That's your point, right? That it's it's not just a demo singer. Their voice, they're using his voice. They're using Johnny Cash's voice. And first of all, did Johnny Cash's estate approve this? I mean, that's the other problem. There's a lot of copyright issues because there's so many people on the internet. You know, TikTok is wild with all of these various remixes and remakes and taking this voice and mixing it with that voice. And if you're going to try and release it commercially, you can't do that. There are, there are, you know, these are, this is tech, this is property. This this is intellectual property that you can't just decide that. Oh, mm-hmm. you know. And there was a, there was the case um, over the summer. There is a, a person producer out there who took Drake and The yep. Weeknd, mixed them together, made a song, wanted to submit it for the Grammys. And initially they said, okay, yeah, we think you can. But then the Grammys came out and said, no, you can't because these vocals weren't approved. This is a copyright issue. The song needs to be released commercially. This particular song was not released commercially. So the Grammy stipulations are now that you have to have a person who created the song, not just a computer. If you use a computer, that's fine. Wow. So it's a lot of it's a lot of gray area right now, and we'll just have to see where it goes. But as far as the Beatles go, this is definitely the last that we're going to hear of the four of them. It is everything real and authentic and everything. So, Melissa, for some reason now, computer love is stuck in my head. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. I appreciate it so much. And thank you all for watching. Our live con- coverage continues after a short break. So they tried to have a Grammy? Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.